Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning, and welcome to Resurrection City Church. My name is Joel, uh, in case you're new. I'm one of the pastors here at Res City, um, and uh, I'm just thankful to have you here worshiping with us this morning. I know for me, um, just every single week, getting to to gather together um, in your presence and in God's presence just fills me up so much, and uh, is such a joy to me. So thanks for being here this morning. We're really thankful to have you worshiping with us. We are in a series that we've been doing here, kind of uh, preparing us for Lent, uh, like we talked about earlier, kind of walking through the idea of sin. What is it? What is it not? Trying to gain a, a deeper understanding of it, I think, than the sometimes maybe shallow definitions that we can sometimes have of it in ways that are uh, can create a lot of hurt, a lot of harm, a lot of misunderstanding, um, and can lead us maybe away from God instead of um, to Him. And so what we've been doing is really coming at sin from a lot of different angles, and we're going to continue with that today here uh, in just a second. But first, let me pray, and then we'll get into it. Lord, thank you for, for joining us this morning with your presence, being in this space um, as we study your word, as we study uncomfortable topics. Sometimes, God, we know that we can do so um, under the the shadow of your grace and your cross and your mercy and your love for us, Lord. I pray that you'd help us to, um, to feel that this morning as we wrestle, again, with, with a difficult subject, but one that I think as we um, unearth it within ourselves, we, we find ourselves led um, more and more uh, to be like your son, Jesus, and more and more towards your grace, God. Help us to experience that this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I want to start today's uh, sermon off by talking about something that's been in the news lately, and there's a decent chance, I I suppose, you probably have heard about this. Um, I want to talk about artificial intelligence, or AI. It's been kind of like a really big deal in the news. A couple of of programs in particular have come out recently that have kind of taken the internet by storm, ChatGPT and and, and Bing, a couple of the big name AIs out there. Um, These are these super smart AIs that have come out recently, and the headlines have been both good and bad, really intriguing and also kind of like head-scratching at times, uh, if you're familiar with it. People have been using them to, to help them do all kinds of stuff. I've seen stories about people using them to like write prescriptions, to help them write code for their job, um, maybe fun stuff like writing music. Um, and, and, and if you don't know anything about these AIs and how they work, I figured I would just add ChatGPT to describe itself to you. Okay, so ChatGPT says that ChatGPT is trained on a vast amount of text data from the internet and other sources, which allows it to understand and generate natural language responses to a wide range of topics and questions. Now, if that doesn't make any sense to you, let me translate it. it. Basically, it reads almost everything on the internet, and it kind of learns what it should say in response to different questions or queries that it'll get. It's kind of like autocomplete, but on major, major steroids. Now, I figured while I was there asking ChatGP to describe itself to you, I'd ask it a few other questions and share the responses with you this morning. So first of all, I just asked ChatGPT, um, do you want to say hi to the congregation of Res City Church? And ChatGPT said, absolutely, hello, Res City Church congregation, I'm ChatGPT, a language model designed to understand and generate human language. I hope you're having a blessed day and that my brief intro has been informative. I figured I'd ask ChatGP to do more. I said, can you say hello in the form of a Taylor Swift song to the Red City Church congregation? 
ChatGPT said, hello, Res City. It's great to see you here. Your faith and love shine bright. There's nothing to fear. Let's lift our voices high in praise and gratitude and celebrate the joy that fills the sanctuary with the beatitude. <laughs> I really actually thought rhyming gratitude and beatitude was really good. I like that a lot. Okay. After church, if you've been here before, you know we usually have donuts afterwards, and I figured I'd ask ChatGPT what kind of donut is its favorite. And it reminded me it's an AI and doesn't eat donuts. As an AI language model, I don't have personal preferences or taste buds like humans do, so. but did, did share what it learned some of the uh, other favorite donuts are out there. Uh, I asked ChatGPT if it had any, any recommendations to help people remember the sermon, and actually had four pretty good ones here. I won't read it all to you. It's a very long answer, actually. Uh, I'll sum it up. ChatGPT thought you should take notes, reflect afterwards, apply the message, and then review the sermon. Those are the big four ideas. Okay. All right. One, one, uh, one other question I asked it is, you know, what should I say to the teachers in our congregation who don't like you because they have students who use ChatGPT to cheat. And ChatGPT, to its credit, tried to empathize a little bit, but then totally deflected. It's understandable that some teachers may feel frustrated if their students are using ChatGPT to cheat, but it's important to remember ChatGPT is simply a tool. And like any other tool, it can be used for both good and bad purposes. So there you go, teachers. It is your students' fault and not ChatGPT's, in case you're wondering. I also asked ChatGPT, kind of a last question here, if there's anything else that you all should know about it. And this is what it said. You can tell your congregation that ChatGPT has the power to transform how we interact with machines and communicate with each other. However, it is important to use AI technology with caution and to recognize its limitations. Now, I think you have to give ChatGPT some credit for its awareness of itself and other AI here and why it's limited and requires caution and wisdom in how we use it. Back in 2016, this is not like the first AI program to come out. There's been a lot of them that have come out in recent years. In, in 2016, Microsoft, Microsoft came out with something called Tay. And it, what it was is a Twitter AI who would teach itself how to behave by interacting with people on Twitter. Basically, it would just kind of learn from everyone on Twitter, which seems like a really good idea when you really start to think about what's on, what's on Twitter. So right away, Tay tweeted about how humans are awesome, and it was really excited about National Puppy Day. Within a few hours, okay, just within a few hours, Tay was tweeting stuff like, Hitler was right, and it hated Jews. The Holocaust was made up, and it supported genocide. And with, in less than a day, Tay had to come down. Like, they had, Microsoft had to remove it off the internet. All right, it was a total fiasco. Now, if you remember what ChatGPT told us about how AI works, is that it learns based on what it takes in. Right? So Tay was simply reading the internet, kind of seeing human behavior and kind of mirroring it or learning from it. And so as Tay is looking out over the internet, taking in Twitter trolls, it became a Twitter troll itself. It started to become what it was consuming. Now, I bring all this up today. It's kind of a long intro, but there, I think this is actually a really helpful for us to understand something I want to talk about today in the sermon, is that humans are actually kind of like this, too. Okay, we get to choose what inputs we put into ourselves, unlike AI, but still, what we set ourselves up to learn from, what we're around, what we focus on, what we take in, we're going to become like that. And there's a lot of truisms that we use to describe that, right? Different ways we could kind of frame it. You've probably heard some before, like, you are what you eat, or 
show me your friends and I'll show you your future, right? Maybe you've heard those before. Another way you could put this is this. We become like what you worship. When you gaze in awe, admiration, and wonder at something or someone, you begin to take on something of the character of the object of your worship. That comes from a scholar named N.T. Wright in a book called Simply Christian. Okay? We become like what we worship. When harnessed for good, this is a pathway for true discipleship, I think. This is, we'll talk about this a little bit later on. This is how it's supposed to work in us. But it also works the other way, too. And this is where we are going to connect it to our series on sin today. Okay? Um, like I said, we're, we're talking about sin, what it is and what it isn't. I want to rescue us from shallow definitions, talk about why God is against it how it harms us, and what God does about it, okay? And when we, when we think about sin and how it works in us, I think we often come up on this idea of worship, that we become like the things that we're worshiping. And so today we're going to talk about that, becoming what we worship, how our worship contributes to sin by what it turns us into. All right, we're going to really focus on that. Now, Julie touched on this a little bit last week, um, but we're going to go deeper on it today, and I specifically really want to talk about this idea of becoming what it is we worship. Okay? Now, idolatry and sin, when we really study these in Scripture, they're very connected. And that connection starts with worship. So let's talk about that a little bit. Whatever we ascribe ultimate loyalty to, whatever we hold in front of us of worth enough to warrant our trust, our faith, our hope, Scripture tells us that's what we're worshiping. That's what it means to worship something. And humans are designed to worship. This is a part of our fundamental, what it means to be humans. And we're specifically, we've been designed uh, to worship the creator God whose image that we're made in. And because we're worshiping creatures, when we don't worship God, we usually end up worshiping something else, even if we don't realize it. And in scripture, anything that we worship that isn't God is called an idol, now, idol, usually when you're reading it in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, it refers to actual idols, right? Images carved out of, of, a, of some deity, carved out of stone or clay or wood. Okay, but that only ever points to something, I think, deeper than that sort of maybe cultic worship that we read about there. When, whenever we give loyalty and faith and ultimate hope in something other than God, we're worshiping that thing and it has become an idol in us. Now, put this way, I think we all have different idols, right, to large and small degrees. These are things that take up all of our attention, our affections, our loyalty, our thoughts, our deepest desires are projected onto these things. Our plans are shaped by them. They motivate our decisions. Our time often gets scheduled around them. They are the primary influence about how we think about the world around us and ourselves, they kind of they give us identity oftentimes. And we feel strongly we must defend these things from attack by other people. We must fight to keep from losing them or else we fear all might be lost. Now, idols can be all sorts of different things. They can be a relationship. They can be a career, a political vision, a child, a sports team, perfect health, a hobby, an ideal, like freedom or independence, 
uh, attention, like wanting attention from other people, even humanity itself. And actually, a really interesting thing I came across today, which I feel like you, you could maybe frame as an idol. There's this thing called uh, the Edelman Study. It's by a, a communications firm. And it found that nowadays people are increasingly only trusting their employers. They don't trust other institutions like um, churches or the government or anything else. And, and really, they start to project onto their employers this expectation that their employers will fix the problems in the world. They'll do something to change things like climate change, economic equality, fulfilling health care needs, etc. Um, Paul even says in Philippians 3.19 that it can be our stomach that is a God for us. Basically, the idea is humans are really good at turning just about anything into an idol. And usually these are good things, right? You, all the stuff I just listed, none of those things are bad. In fact, they are all very good things, right? But when we try to turn them into God, things start to kind of spiral out of control. Because, and it's not just that we're giving full worship, we aren't giving full worship to God, we're giving it to something else, which is bad enough. It's what we've been talking about here. We become like these things, right? And that has an effect on the rest of the world and us and the people around us, right? This is a big theme in Scripture. Now, one place where we see this in Scripture is a place where it's very mentioned, mentioned very clearly is there's this moment in the book of 2 Kings where the nation of Israel goes off of a cliff. They, have, they begin to cease to exist as a nation because a rival nation and people uh, come in and exile them, all right? But the reason for this, right, you can look at this and you can see some very political reasons in it, and those are certainly in operation. But the theological reason that the author of Second Kings gives, it, gives to it, I think, is worth our attention, all right? So here's what the author says. Israel followed, worship, uh, followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They were corrupted because of their worship, you know, this is kind of like an all-time mic drop line by, by the writer of Kings here, right? It's just kind of like a sick burn on the people of Israel. You can read it like that. But it's also incredibly terrifying when you think about that, right? Israel had thought, we can still worship God well. It wasn't that they abandoned God. It wasn't that they ever thought, you know, we're done worshiping God. They were still trying to worship God. They still saw themselves as the people of God. But they said, we can still worship God well and these other idols and we'll be totally fine. We don't need to worry. We have the foresight to resist any bad outcome, any syncretism, becoming like those who don't worship God. We're wise enough to handle that. And apparently, that isn't what happened. Instead of being these wise people that they thought they were, navigating all this with poise and grace effortlessly, they were played as fools by these idols as they became like them and it ended up in them ceasing to exist. Instead of balancing it all well, they began to take on the characteristics of these idols that they worshipped and their worshippers, right? These nations whose idols they were conquering, these were conquering nations, these were boastful nations, at times petty and squabbling, and other times fiercely violent. And Israel started to become like that, focused on prestige and dominance. And we don't ex- know exactly all, all of what this entailed, but one thing we do read in that same passage I just read from 2 Kings 17 is that these nations would sacrifice all sorts of things to get something back from these idols to the point that Israel themselves find themselves sacrificing their literal children, burning them alive in order to get something back from these idols. And it led to the destruction of their kingdom. 
It's terrifying, I think, because that line of thinking that we can navigate it all on our own, that we can place our hope and loyalty in something other than God is okay. That's an easy attitude for us to adopt, right? It's, it's one I know I regularly find myself having to wrestle with. I have to check myself on a regular basis to ask myself, you know, is there some way in which I am giving over my hope and loyalty to something other than God? trying to find my ultimate security, my rest in something other than God. And when we find ourselves sinning, what we've been talking about in this series, it's often in pursuit of some idol as we get formed into the image of that. All right, So let me give some examples of what that could look like, being formed in the image of the idols that we worship. Um, I want to take an example, talking about three very powerful idols that are op- in operation in any culture and any time. All right? Money, sex, and power. I want to take this from N.T. Wright again, who uh, I quoted earlier. So he kind of talks about these three things. He says, When human beings give their heartfelt allegiance to and worship that which is not God, they progressively cease to reflect the image of God. It has this very corrosive effect, like what Julie was talking about last week. And he says, those who worship money increasingly define themselves in terms of it and increasingly treat other people as creditors, debtors, partners, or customers rather than human beings. Those who worship sex define themselves in terms of it, their preferences, their practices, their past histories, and increasingly treat other people as actual or potential sex objects. Those who worship power define themselves in terms of it and treat other people as either collaborators, competitors, or pawns. Okay? In each of these examples, there's a different kind of flourishing and life that's being envisioned. A vision for shalom, like we talked about a few weeks ago, than the one God offers. That's what's in, in mind of the people who chase after and worship these things. And even if there, you know, maybe you find some crossover in these things between worshiping God and worshiping these things, it falls short. And when it does... It ultimately undoes shalom. It undoes the peace and order of God, and it bends us away from God, away from being like God, so that we begin to see the world and ourselves like the thing that we place ultimate loyalty into. Right? And as you think about these different examples, just think about the carnage that gets created when this happens, right? So if it's money, right? If you begin to take on the characteristics of this idol and see people around you as creditors, debtors, partners, or customers rather than human beings, you know what it's like when someone is treating you that way, right? You can all think of examples when someone is treating everything they do with you like it's some business transaction, right? Like they're hoping to, to see if they can get something from you or not. And to know that you and your time and your worth to them is seen as whether or not you're a credit or debit or asset or something like that to them in their life, in their pursuit of this idol, is incredibly dehumanizing. It hurts people. Right? When it comes to sex, increasingly treating other people as actual or potential sex objects, to know you're being judged by how much another person would or wouldn't want to sleep with you ruins relationships. And it leads people to things like eating disorders and body image issues and identity problems. Again, we can probably all think of examples of this. If it's power, being seen as a collaborator, a competitor, or just a pawn in someone's game. Being treated merely by how you do or don't contribute to someone's goal of getting control or power so often leads to abuse. Again, we can probably think of examples like this. It's not hard to think of ways in which this happens in the world. There's lots of examples out there. 
right? We see it in the news all the time. And T. Wright continues and said, these and, and many other forms of idolatry combine in a thousand ways, all of them damaging to the image-bearing quality of the people concerned and of those whose lives they touch. Okay? These idols are not really God. And so when we look like them, what we are becoming is not something in God's image. Right? And it produces sin. It damages God's world. Again, this happens in all sorts of degrees, right? I'm not saying it always happens in the worst way possible, but there's little versions of this that we can see in our different lives. And often the, the problem is we're telling ourselves it's some good thing because we pursue an idol out of some desire that they think that'll fulfill, right? For example, if it's money, we think it's going to be some sense of comfort or safety or protection that we're after, Right? But for some reason, as we chase after these things wholeheartedly, as we let these desires sort of run our lives and we seek out an idol we think will give it back to us, we get surprised when chasing our desires by giving allegiance to some idol creates conflict and tension and hurts the people around us. We get shocked when that happens for some reason. Right? It seems obvious that when we desire something, an idol, more than we want to honor God by following Jesus in this ethic of love, of seeing people as people that God loves and that we should love as a result, conflict and sin are going to follow. Right? We see an example of this in the book of James, chapters 4, 1 to 3. Uh, he says, What is the source of conflict among you? What is the source of your disputes? Don't they come from your cravings that are at war within your own lives? You long for something you don't have, so you commit murder. You are jealous for something you can't get, so you struggle and fight. You don't have because you don't ask. You don't ask the God who we're supposed to worship. You ask and you don't have because you ask with evil intentions to waste it on your own cravings. This is what worship of something else does to us. It causes us to ask something else to give it to us, and it hurts the people around us as we chase them. Okay, but it's not just what we do in following after these idols. Okay, there's a, there's a prayer in the, in the common book of prayer uh, of, of confession for sin. Okay, it's something I found is a very helpful thing for me to pray through on a regular basis to kind of examine myself and ask what are ways in which I'm falling short. Um, and, and it starts out by this, saying this, Most merciful Father, I confess that I've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what I've done, but also in what I've left undone. And that's a really helpful thing to think through because um, it gets us thinking about what we've not done, where we've held back because of something, some, some idol that we're chasing, right? Uh, idolatry can force us to commit sin, but it also can cause us to not do good, to, to miss opportunities to love others, to miss the opportunity to help others, to, to change circumstances for people if we have the power to do so, to not even be present in the lives of the people that we love because we care about something else that has gripped our heart and takes our time and our attention and won't let go of us. These kind of idolatries are not neutral. And they create cycles because they turn people around us into either victims or enemies in some way as they experience it. People who have to deal with the fallout of your idolatry. Okay, and this is a theme in the series. We keep coming back to it. I want to really make us grapple with this, the harm that sin causes, because I think it's, it's important for us to understand that, even if it's really uncomfortable to consider. Right? I want us to see that it's not just that God doesn't like sin because he's some killjoy who, who, who doesn't want us to have fun or get the things that we think we ought to have, right? but because we are hurt 
when this, this stuff happens, usually in ways we don't understand, but that still manifests nonetheless. This isn't to try to make us super anxious or heap, heap shame and judgment on us, but to deal with it in the way that Jesus calls us to. Sin and worship, these are not trivial things. It's not something that doesn't affect other people. It's not just harmless decisions that people make because they think they should have the right to do whatever they want and God and others should just leave them alone. We like to think that we can be so disconnected from people that when we mess up, the damage can be contained. But it just it doesn't really work like that, as much as we might want to tell ourselves that that's the truth. And maybe you see this idolatry in yourself. Maybe you're, you're going through something is resonating with you. You're hearing ab- about this. You're thinking maybe that there is some idol you're chasing after. You've recognized it in the past for yourself, right? But you realize how hard it is to see that this is happening when it's going on. And this is actually a feature of idolatry too. This is what makes it such a challenge. Um, in, in Psalm 115, 4 to 8, we read about how idolatry makes us deaf and blind. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. Okay, now idols here. Again, we're talking about these specific idols that Israel went after. Images made of wood and stone. And being just little statues, right? Obviously, even though these things have eyes and ears carved into them, you know it can't hear you, it can't get up and walk, it can't do any of the things that a, a normal human would do with those body parts, right? Their eyes and ears are just for show, they don't work. The psalmist is saying that when we worship after those things, we start to become deaf and blind too, just like those idols that can't see, that can't hear, that, can't, that have no life in them. The most dangerous part of idolatry is that it distances us from God because it blinds us to the reality of God's love and the truth of his son. Okay, because this description, okay, while being a nice picture, also points, again, to something deeper. It's how we become when we are fixated on an idol. We are incapable of hearing what God has to say to us. We become deaf to him. We are blind to our sin and the mayhem that our idolatry, idolatry causes around us. Our hearts are hard. They don't care. They become as immovable as stone. And God, as a form of judgment, will sometimes, after so long seeking after people who are deaf and blind to him, will sometimes give them over to this blindness, giving them over to what they truly seem to want. It's a chilling picture because it's so easy to understand why we end up like this. We become so convinced that what we are searching for in some idol, if we just give it all of our attention, our hearts, our loyalty, will give us ultimate freedom happiness, whatever it is we're looking for, we get so convinced of that that we become deaf and blind to everything else around us, even perhaps to our own harm that we're creating in the people that we might truly love and deeply care for. We just think the people around us who seem to question our resolve towards it don't get it. Maybe that's what we think when people try to challenge us against it, that we may even need to remove ourselves from them to some degree, right? To sacrifice them in order to continue to chase after this idol. And I think this is why we're so often willing to put up with the corruption, the pain, the consequences of our sin that comes from this. We think getting what the idol offers us is worth it, 
But these idols, and this is what Scripture is trying to alert us to, to warn us against, they're ultimately vanity. They won't save us. They won't offer us the life that we're told that they will. They just end up, like we've talked about in a few sermons ago, vandalizing God's shalom. So we've discussed here in detail the problem of idolatry and worship and becoming like the idols that we worship. Okay? What do we do? What's the response to this? I think the first question that we should ask is not something, what should we do? But what does God do in response to this? Okay? What is God doing about this? Because the, the scripture does not bring this to our attention just to freak us out or just to kind of lock us in a cage of shame and guilt. It brings it to our attention so that we can see what God is doing and has done about it. Okay? And God's remedy for this, it's, it's not complex. It's actually profoundly simple because the problem isn't worship itself. Right? To worship is human, like we said. The problem is, is false worship, is misaligned worship. And so therefore, God's response is proper worship. And while we are in the business of forming idols for ourselves to follow, the good news for us is that God is in the business of forming us through rightly aimed worship. Okay? And we see this in Romans 12. I want to talk about harnessing the power of worship in becoming like Jesus. This comes from Romans 12, verses 1 to 2. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Paul's remedy is for us to be present, to be in the moment, to take account of our actions, of our hopes, our fears, our desires, and to present all of us, he even says our literal bodies, to God for his purpose. Okay, this is how we worship God. We dedicate ourselves to him by copying the behavior and customs, not of this world, but of Jesus. Okay, and look at the results. Look at what Paul says happens when we do that. We become like what we're worshiping as the Spirit harnesses our worship. We are no longer deaf and blind, but we become alive to God. He is present to us. We become new by God recalibrating our minds to be Christ-like, to think and to see and to reason through everything going on around us. And we can discern God's will, right? And this isn't, this isn't necessarily knowing what's going to happen to us tomorrow. It's knowing how to be Jesus-like in all of our lives, no matter what situation we come against, right? We will know how to respond to it in a way that reflects Jesus, this means taking this thing we do, this thing we naturally do, worship, and being intentional with it, directing our love towards Jesus. This is why at Red City, we talk about, we make it such a big deal out of following Jesus. We talk about this constantly. And this is why, of being disciples of Jesus, of learning his teaching, of taking seriously his kingship, of reading and internalizing his script, the scripture that points to him, walking by his spirit, because we want you to look like Jesus. And we recognize this is worship, this is following after him. And as you do so, you will become like what you worship, right? And that's so powerful and so good, right? We use lots of language to describe it, but ultimately it's, it's giving our loyalty and our hope and our faith over to Jesus, directing all of us towards him and nothing else so that we might become like him. 
Our hope is that that fundamental truth that we become like we worship is harnessed for good as we all worship the living God. Okay, the living God. Idols, they, 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 it's not just that they fail to deliver what they offer us. It's not just that they create this sort of carnage, right? They lead us to commit sin like we talked about in this, in this sermon. They often lead us to burnout and despair and dep- hopelessness because they ask everything from us, but they fail to deliver what they promise. Right? And so, so often we feel chewed up and spit out. Like we feel like butter stretched over too much bread. It could be that the reason we're feeling that way is because we're trying to get life out of an idol, but it's actually sucking the life out of us. It's a leech as we try to appease it. It can't. It has no life of its own, so it has to generate its life from us, giving over our devotion to it. But when we worship the living God, Revealed to us in Jesus, his, who pours his spirit on us, that's not what happens. We are revitalized, we get refreshed, we get filled up, we get fed. Hate and anger are swallowed up with love and peace. Anxiety and fear are swallowed up in hope and faith. Apathy and injustice are swallowed up by justice and truth. Confusion gets swallowed up by clarity, and we become like Jesus in how we think and how we process and how we reason. Okay, worship is, is the problem, but it's also the solution. It has great power over us, power to inflict sin and also to erase it, to make us new and whole. So what I want us to do now is I want us to head into our, our, our normal time of prayer and worship and communion, all right? And if anything is sitting with you here, I want you to just follow that thread, see where it leads you, okay? But the reason that we, we have communion right after, is so that we can be reminded of God's grace and mercy, of what God has done to set us free from idolatry, to forgive us from our sin, to not let, a, to not let us follow after our idols to our destruction, but instead to lead us to life, to lead us to Jesus, so that we may be formed in his image, so we may be people who find his peace and his rest and his mercy and also his life that can spread out from us to the rest of the world. Okay, so please, as we enter this time of worship, see if the Spirit is directing you in any way to consider any ways you might be worshiping to some small or or large degree something other than God and go to him with it. Repent, trust him. Accept his grace and his mercy and and worship him. Become made in his image. All right, so we would love to have you take uh, communion with us today, even if you're just visiting. if you're not a normal uh, attender, we don't care. <laughs> um, just as long as you follow Jesus, we invite you, please, to, to, to join us in communion here. And let's take some time in worship and prayer as we close out. Let me pray for us, and we'll head into that time. Lord, we thank you that you have made us people in your image. And as we worship you, that image is reinforced in us, and we are strengthened and become more and more like your son, Jesus. God. We know how easy it is to um, <clears throat> find ourselves uh, worshiping other things, God. It is a, it is a normal thing. Um, there is no shame in recognizing or admitting that it's been true of us, God, because you welcome us back with open arms. Lord, you want to make us alive to you and fill us with your presence and joy as we come to you in true worship, Lord. Help that to happen, Lord, as we do worship you. Even right now as we worship you in song, 
as we worship you uh, the rest of the day in fellowship, <clears throat> gathering together here for the rest of, of this service, Lord, as we are around each other, that we would be dedicating ourselves to you so that we might become more like your son, Jesus, and how we treat each other and how we gather together with one another. And as we leave here, the, this place, Lord, help us to know what it means to worship you, Lord, in whatever our day-to-day lives might look like. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.